Our text this morning is in the New Testament book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. Galatians comes just before Ephesians. It is not a common Christmas text. And yet it is very much about the incarnation, about the coming of God the Son to us. As I mentioned earlier, uh, most people simply do not enjoy waiting. In fact, most people, I think, would uh, say that they, they highly detest having to wait. Maybe hate is not too strong of a word when it comes to the matter of waiting. Um, whether you're waiting for everybody else to come in and get in the car or you're waiting for the doctor to call or maybe waiting on a grocery line, we do not enjoy waiting. As a young boy growing up at home, my mother did not like waiting either. And so before dinner was done, about 10 to 15 minutes before dinner was actually done, my mother would say, dinner's ready, dinner's ready. And I would put everything down and go to the table, and there I would have to wait and wait and wait. Wait for my father to come up from the basement. Wait for my grandmother to come down the steps very slowly one step at a time. I had to wait for my sister to get off the phone and my other brother to turn off his music, for my other brother to turn off the TV, and for my other brother to crawl to the high chair. I just sat there and waited and waited and waited. And my mother would very slowly put things on the table, and I was, of course, not allowed to touch it, much less eat it, until everybody got to the table. Five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. It took me years to figure this out, but dinner really wasn't ready. She just knew that she had to call everybody early because she didn't want to wait. She didn't want the food to get cold, and everybody else had caught on. They would not respond, but eventually I caught on, and I stopped coming on time too, which meant my mother would call for dinner even earlier. Till this day, my wife says, dinner's ready, and I don't believe her. <laughs> and she'll say, dinner's ready, and I still sit there. It's not until she says, do you want me to make a plate for you? Then I say, oh, okay, now dinner's ready. <laughs> and that's when I get up. Why? Because I do not like waiting. Let me draw your attention to Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. In fact, I'll read verse 5 to you as well because it is a key verse in our way of thinking as people who are followers of Christ. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 reads this way. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. As sons. Not as sons and daughters. As sons. Why? Because you see, in that culture, in that time, daughters had no rights whatsoever. No inheritance, no rights. Sons did. And what God is saying here is that he treats all of his children with the rights of sons. So it doesn't matter whether you're male or female, you have the same rights, same inheritance as followers of Jesus Christ. 
It doesn't mean that your gender is not important. It means that your status in Christ is what matters. He treats you equally across the board with the full inheritance of salvation and all that comes to the redeemed. Galatians 4.4 But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. There's a great deal of waiting here, have you noticed? What a great deal of waiting when we read that phrase, but when the fullness of time had come. Fullness of time. Fullness of time is that amount of time predetermined in the great counsel of God. That amount of time being determined as the right time, the proper time. The fullness of time is that time when the entire course of human history was ready. We read here, Jesus Christ was born. In fact, if you go back two verses to chapter 4, verse 2, it speaks there of the date set by his father. That's the fullness of time. World history and the history of religion. These are big words. Please pay attention. I, I, I want you to embrace this reality. The history of the world, the history of religion is culminated in Christianity. It's all culminated in the birth of Jesus Christ. There have been numerous religions, hundreds of religions throughout history. Religion is nothing but seeking God. Hundreds of religions, people by the millions trying to find God in different periods of history, different parts of the world, different religions, progressively coursing through time, all of those are trumped and culminated in the Christ of Christianity. Christ is the culmination of all religion and world history. Christ. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. He sent his son who was present with him. In fact, if you read John chapter 1, verse 1, in regards to his son, the word, it says the word was with God and the word was God. Here we read that in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman. Which means, besides other things, it means waiting. It means waiting nine months. Waiting. This also means that if he was born of a woman, it also means years of waiting for this baby to grow up and to become a man. In fact, our understanding is that Christ was about 30 years old when he started his public ministry. We're talking about waiting 30 years, decades of training and rearing on a part of his mother, and years of education and nurture, 30 years before he becomes or is exposed before he reveals himself as the Messiah. 30 long years. That's older than some of you. And we also see here that he was born of a woman born under the law. 
weren't under the law. The world was subject to the law. It was the era of law. Whether you're talking about the Roman robust and very threatening powerful law or maybe the Jewish law that was very overbearing, recorded for us in the Old Testament. Uh, the very law that Christ would bring an end to. He would fulfill it. Uh, Christ was born under the shackles of the law. Laws that he would keep, yes. Laws that he would keep every jot and tittle of, every aspect of the law. He did not break any of it. And yet it was the breaking of this very law that he was said to be guilty of. The one who broke none of the laws was crucified for having broken the law, supposedly. The world did not have an understanding of grace when Christ was born. Rome was very mighty, and Rome had chiseled its laws into stone so that it would never be forgotten. Laws that continued to spread. Every time Rome conquered another nation, their law came with it. And it brought fear to the average man. But then there was the Jewish Old Testament law. It reigned over the nation of Israel. It was a law that was designed by God and issued by God in order to show to man how sinful he is. Anybody who said, oh, I'm not sinful, all God had to do is say, well, did you break this law? Oh, yeah, I did. Well, then you're sinful. A law that was designed to show how sinful we are the self-righteous would take that chain and wear it around his neck as a necklace saying, look how righteous I am. Look at all the laws I keep. Don't you wish you were like me? You should be more like me. But the common Jew, the common average man, wore that same law around his ankle like a ball and chain, holding him back and suppressing him. Both were hoping that that law would save their souls. And it was impossible. Well, here we read in Galatians 4.4 that God gave his son to this world as a gift of grace in order that we may know life. But it's not a life outside of the law, but a, a life despite the law. Through God's grace, through the grace of his tender love, his compassion to us. We witness the miracle of new life in Jesus Christ. At the fullness of time, God gave his son so that you can have new life, so that you can be adopted into the family of God with all rights as a child of God. That's good news. It's wonderful news. Well, it's news for which we should celebrate. It is good that nationally, even worldwide, we have this one particular day in which we celebrate this good news, Christmas. There's no greater news. The Savior has come for you. And he has made it possible that you would have new life, that you would be part of the family of God, that he would then give to you all the rights and privileges of being a child of God. Christmas. But I must say, the waiting for the Christ to come, that must have been excruciating. How difficult it must have been. 
centuries and centuries of waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. In fact, between the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi, and the Gospel of Matthew, the first Gospel in the New Testament, there are 400 years. 400 years in which God said nothing to his people. 400 years of silence from God. Can you imagine what they were thinking? How much longer do we have to wait? You promised there would be a Savior, but things just keep getting worse. You said there would be redemption, but we don't see it. Do you ever get tired of waiting? I mean about important things. I'm not talking about the grocery line. Waiting on God to finally fulfill what he said he would in the scriptures. Waiting for God to intervene in your life, in your family, in your home, whatever it may be. Waiting can be very difficult. Imagine how hard it was for these people 400 years of waiting. And after centuries of waiting, the promises concerning the salvation of Christ, they're finally becoming a reality. We just sang about them. Right before the eyes of all these people, the Messiah was indeed finally born and his birth was witnessed. Angels opened up the skies and sang about it. And these shepherds witnessed it. In fact, they went to the manger and they found the baby Christ. And then they went and told others and they believed. And they were enthusiastic. Magi came. Having read the prophecy, they came to witness the Savior. King Herod was so afraid that he would lose his throne, he said, oh, I believe this child is born. And if he is to be a king, that means he's going to replace me. So I will kill all the children in that age group, two and under, in order that I would keep my throne. You see, he believed, but he believed for the wrong reasons and in the wrong way. In fact, with King Herod's actions, not only did he read the prophecy and believe the prophecy, but he fulfills prophecy because it was told to us prophetically that there would be this slaughter and that Christ and his family would have to flee to Egypt, and that's exactly what they did. And then there was more waiting because after the birth of Christ, there's 30 more years. Where's the Savior? By now, everybody's beginning to wonder, was that really true, the story about the angels? They're beginning to wonder, well, maybe that was made up. Or, or maybe God changed his mind. Obviously, it's been 10, 20, 30 years now, and there's still no Messiah. There's still no Savior. And that's when suddenly, when they had forgotten all of the nativity stories, that's when Jesus, now a man, is introduced by no other than John the Baptist. Now John the Baptist begins to proclaim the Christ. And people are now alarmed and they're astounded. And now they begin to believe. Once again, you'll recall in Luke chapter 7, the widow Nain, who had lost her husband and now loses her son as well. And Christ gives new life, gives life back to this deceased young man, and what we read in Luke 7, 17 is this. This word about him, this word about Jesus Christ spread to others. And now people said, the fullness of time, it's now. 
Christ is coming. He is here. And people lined up to meet him. To meet him with a proper heart. And so first they repented and they went through the waters of baptism to say, look, I am ready to meet my Savior. I am repentant. As I said earlier, Advent is all about waiting for the Savior to come. And of course, on this side of Advent, we talk about waiting in the past. Uh, they waited. They waited, and we celebrate the fact that they waited. And what a celebration it is. But waiting can be very, very, very hard. Let's talk a little this morning about God's school of waiting. God's school of waiting. Uh, this week, I spent quite a few hours in a hospital waiting room. It's not a, a good place, no matter how nice they make it look. Um, I counted 45 surgeries going on at the same time. And, and so you can imagine all the people in the waiting room. I think they should change the name of the waiting room to the anxiety room. Sir, you could wait in the anxiety room. It's down a hall and over to the left. It's a very comfortable place. We have coffee and donuts in the anxiety room. I sat there and I prayed for people in the anxiety room. And I wonder, how can they manage, how can they cope without the confidence that we have in Christ? It is a hopeless waiting that breeds anxiety. Our waiting is completely different. Completely different. God's people often do wait. And sometimes we don't wait very well, though. I think you would agree. Um, waiting is a rather difficult skill to master. And, and the problem with waiting, or better yet, the, the problem with learning how to wait is that it comes with practice. The more we wait, the better we get at it, or at least we should get better at it. But the problem is we have to wait in order to develop that skill. Uh, it's a skill nobody really wants to develop. Nobody wants to wait. In order to learn how to wait, we have to wait a great deal of time. A and waiting can actually bring out the worst in us. It really can, and often does. It certainly did of God's people in, in the Old Testament. And I think that waiting also brings out the worst in God's people in the New Testament, the, the, the Church of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Earlier this week, uh, I found myself a little surprised at myself because one of the most dreaded waiting periods for me is behind a yellow school bus. <laughs> when I want to get to where I'm going and I get behind a bus, I'm like, oh, no. Had I been here five seconds earlier, and now I pull up behind the bus, and I begin to think stupid things like, you're hugging your child goodbye before he gets on a bus? This is no time to hug. Now it's time to board. <laughs> Waiting makes us do and think ridiculous things. God's people often because of their waiting, stopped believing in God. And because of their waiting, they stopped obeying God. At times, they replaced God because they got tired of waiting. 
Why wait for you, God, if you're not going to do what I expect you to do when I would rather you do it? Keep in mind what happened in Mount Sinai. They got tired of waiting on God. They got tired on God sending Moses back. So what did they do? They replaced God. We are no different. We replace God. Uh, some people get tired of waiting on God, and so they say, you know what, Lord, thank you, but I'm going to do it my way. I'm not going to wait for you any longer. I'm just going to do it my way, and, and hopefully, well, hopefully you'll be satisfied with it. But I, I can accomplish this. Some people, they say, you know, this waiting period is pretty long. I'm going to wait to serve the Lord later because I have plenty of time. And so I'm just going to live any way I want right now. And when the time comes, I'll start serving you because this waiting period doesn't matter. Waiting can bring the very worst out of us. No question about it. But God does school us through waiting. Waiting is actually very valuable to every single one of us here. I don't know that any of us enjoy it, but it's very valuable. Waiting is part of the human experience, but more importantly for us this morning, please understand that waiting is part of the Christian experience. At the fullness of time, that means it was waiting... God fulfills his promises to his children. And we all love the fact that God fulfills his promises. What we don't enjoy is the fact that at the fullness of time, which means I have to wait. And it's so uncomfortable. We often see waiting as a hindrance. It's, it's a hindrance uh, because uh, it, it, it hinders and uh, wastes away at our time. It wastes our precious time. And it's an annoyance instead of an anticipation. I always found that commercial for the ketchup to be such a, 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 a smart, smart commercial. Anticipation, it's making me wait. And one of the things I don't enjoy is waiting for the ketchup to come out. And you're waiting, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and you're waiting. Well, they turned in and said, it's not waiting, it's anticipation. Wait and see how good it's going to be. Well, there's reality there for the Christian, not with ketchup, but in the Christian life. <laughs> that we are anticipating what God has promised he is going to do. We are anticipating, we're not wasting, we are anticipating the fulfillment of God's promises. We do see it as a hindrance to our success. Waiting seems to infringe on my own accomplishments. It steals from me. It steals my pleasure from me. Uh, every moment I have to wait means I'm not enjoying myself. And we really do appreciate our pleasure, don't we? You take away waiting, that means I get more pleasure time. We place too much emphasis on pleasure. My friends, there, there's no question that we are adverse to waiting, but there is great advantage for us as Christians to wait. God's school of waiting. God's school of waiting is very valuable to you. Right now, you're waiting for me. You're probably waiting to see what I'm going to say next, and why don't you get along with it? Say it already. But now you're waiting. Do you realize that the Christian life hinges on the absolute? This absolute, you have to wait. Children don't like hearing it from their parents. We don't like hearing it from God. 
but it's the reality of the Christian life. You have to wait. Wait and see that the Lord is good. Waiting does have a purpose. The psalmist writes in 27.14, Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. There's a reason why the psalmist says it twice. It's our tendency not to wait. Wait for the Lord. The reality is that the Christian life lives in this tension of the here but not yet. That's the tension we live in. The here, right now, but not yet. Which means what? It means wait. The here, but not yet. In other words, the promises God has made to you, they're absolutely true. They're absolutely sure he will not let you down. However, the fulfillment of those promises, though they are sure right now, they won't be fulfilled until later. Not yet. That's very difficult for most Christians, for most people to accept. But God will fulfill it. In the school of God's waiting, we learn this great truth. The very truth that actually adds to our waiting time. Look at Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55 and verse 8. I don't know if it's there on a wall for you, but I know it's in your Bible. Isaiah 55, 8. It reads this way. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Did you get that? We can't measure our lives, our goals, our aspirations, our expectations by our own timeline by our own ruler. Rather, God's ways take precedence. My ways are not your ways. He does things his way, the right way. Hebrews 13, 14 reads this. For here we have, here in this world, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come, which means we have to wait. We are anticipating what is yet to come. And when we long for eternity, my friends, we are beginning, we are beginning to see the value of waiting. So let me list for you the value of waiting. And it begins right there. Waiting teaches us to set our eyes on eternity. Instead of the now, the today, waiting actually takes our focus and puts it somewhere else. It puts it in eternity. It helps me to anticipate and long for eternity. Naturally, we anticipate tomorrow, we long for vacation. No, God says there's so much more to life than that. There is this thing called eternal life, heaven in the presence of God. Anticipate that and long for it and waiting teaches you to anticipate heaven. It makes you long for heaven. And when we are longing for eternity, we are aching for a better world. Through waiting, we learn to prioritize what is eternal over those things that are temporal. The great preacher, Jonathan Edwards, wrote this. He prayed this. O oh Lord, Stamp eternity onto my eyeballs. Eternity onto my eyes. 
waiting actually forces us to look at those things that are not yet, those things that are still unseen, and desire them in eternity. But if that is too difficult for you, if that's too esoteric for you, maybe this will help you. Waiting teaches us to pray. Waiting actually is good for us because God teaches us to speak to him, to run to him and talk to him while we're waiting. It teaches us to commune with Jesus Christ. It's something that we do not naturally do when we don't desire or long for something. When everything is just fine, when we have everything we want, when we are not waiting, what do we do? Generally, we don't pray. Generally, we don't run to Christ. I remember many years ago when I first started in ministry, my first year in ministry was in a very urban, very inner city population. And there we would have teenagers come, uh, over 100 kids would come and they would fill a gym. It was a, a rather desperate community. It was a community where I had to time when, when I was going to drop kids off at their home because of the drive-by shootings. I had to make sure I either get there before the drive-by or after the drive-by because they would come at a certain hour on a certain day of the week and they would just shoot. And you didn't want to be there. I remember one time just standing there talking to somebody and I look and there's blood on the sidewalk. And I said, what happened here? And it was Maria was shot killed the week before and the blood was still there. Huh. It was a desperate place. But what I learned about those desperate kids is that they were desperate for Christ. They were desperate for hope. They would flock, they would run to Christ in prayer. From there, I moved to a ministry in one of the most affluent communities in America, in Bergen County, New Jersey. And there, I could barely get any child interested in the things of the Lord. There was no interest whatsoever whatsoever. Why? Because they had everything. They needed nothing more that they knew of. Let me ask you, who is better off? The desperate kids who flocked to Christ? Or the satisfied kids who had everything but never opened their ears to the gospel? Who's better off? Waiting teaches us to pray, my friends. So thank the Lord for making you wait, because chances are you would not pray otherwise. It also teaches us to lean on God, to approach God with trust. The, the essence of faith is dependent on waiting. In other words, you can't have faith without waiting. You cannot have faith without waiting. Hebrews 11.1 1 reads this way. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, that means waiting, the convictions of things not yet seen. Waiting. Leaning on God causes us to not only exercise faith, but to grow our faith. The more we lean on God, the more we learn to trust him. You see how important waiting is? As uncomfortable as it is, it will refine your faith, it will instill faith, even as you look to God and wait on Him. But be careful. Be, be aware 
that waiting can also make you go in the opposite direction. Give up on God and say, I'll have nothing more to do with him because I'm tired of waiting. Be careful. Well, waiting has other values as well. Here's another one, a fourth one for you if you're counting. Waiting teaches us how needy we are. Waiting on God will actually teach you how really, really needy your soul is. In the process, it teaches us how needy we actually are. How unable we are to effectuate change or success that really matters. It teaches us that our greatest longings are satisfied in Christ Jesus alone, waiting. The proud heart will say this, say, I'll gain it my way. But look, the person who is pliable, the person who has a supple heart will cry out, I need thee, Lord, I need thee every hour, I need thee. Waiting trains us to become that person. It will also teach you what you really do prize in life. Uh, waiting is very revealing. It shows to us not only what we want, what we prize, but it also teaches us how much we want that. It reveals our hearts. How important is that to you? Waiting gives us an opportunity then to assess our heart longings and to better know ourselves. It's very revealing. And it also gives us an opportunity to change and repent. Waiting gives us an opportunity to not only know ourselves, but to actually repent where we need to repent and make changes where we need to change. Aren't you glad that God has been patient with you? And if I could put it this way, we should be patient with God. It's not that God needs patience from us, but what I'm saying is that we should willingly wait on God's fulfillment of his promises. Knowing that some of those promises will be in this life, some of this, those promises will be in the afterlife, in eternity. But we patiently wait. He's giving you opportunity to repent by making you wait. He's giving you opportunity to make right a wrong by making you wait. He's also giving opportunity for others to repent and confess and come to him. And there will be that day in which that last person will repent and history will come to a close and Christ, the second advent, will occur. Until then, we wait and we thank the Lord for not closing the doors any sooner in the hope that others would come to him as well. But consider this as well. One last value in waiting. Waiting teaches us to be content. Waiting teaches us contentment. Uh, being content with what seems lacking or uncomfortable. And that is very difficult. But waiting does teach us how to be content. Um, it's true that waiting can cause us to panic. But look at what 1 Timothy 6.6 6 says. We're going to look at this verse next month. 
First Timothy 6, 6 reads this way. But godliness with contentment, do you know the rest? Is of great gain. Godliness along with contentment is of great gain. That is to say that maybe you're waiting. Maybe you're waiting on your spouse to change. Maybe you're waiting uh, uh, on a wayward child to turn to Christ. Maybe you're waiting for a better job or more income. Maybe you're waiting for healing in your body. Whatever it is that you've been waiting for, maybe you're waiting for circumstances to change so finally you can say, wow, now life is enjoyable. Understand this, 1 Timothy 6.6. When you take contentment and couple it with godliness, your life will radically be changed. When you put those two together, it will be of great gain to you. Now, contentment is not necessarily faith, but contentment does require faith. It involves faith. And to underscore my point, turn with me to Philippians 4, chapter 12. Over to the right from where we are now in Galatians. Philippians chapter 4. And verse 12. Here Paul is speaking about how he has learned to be content. And I want to, want to underscore that word, learned. Philippians 4.12, Paul writes, I have learned to be content. I have learned it. It's not something that just comes supernaturally. It's not something that comes without having to practice. He has learned to be content. And notice here that he also notes that this contentment is independent of his physical circumstances. He says, I have learned to be content in all circumstances, good or bad. Mind you, when he writes that, he's in jail. I have learned to be content in all circumstances. D.A. Carson, a great theologian still with us, uh, wrote in an article entitled The Rare Jewel of Contentment. He, he notes here how contentment is dependent on the power of God. It's not based on our circumstances, but rather it is dependent on the power of God. And, and if you look there in chapter 4, verse 13 of Philippians, Paul writes, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that's Carson's point. Yes, I can do all things. How? Through the power of God. I can be content. It, it wasn't that Paul was such a disciplined guy. Well, there he developed his contentment. Or he had so many experiences that he learned to be content. No, no, no. He, verse 13, 413, he was able to be content because he relied on the power of God in him. In other words, he sought to be godly. When godliness prevails, when the word of God reigns in you, when Christian virtues abound in you, that's godliness, God's people will act according to God's purpose. And contentment, joined together with godliness, will be of great gain to you. What is contentment? Contentment is not saying, oh, 
everything's fine. Oh, people have it worse. That's not contentment. Contentment is not saying, oh, I, I'm enjoying this experience. No, no, not, not at all. Contentment is this. I am fine with where I am because of God's purpose. God is strengthening me through this event in my life. And it is his strength that carries me through these adverse circumstances. Contentment says, even though this is difficult, I am at peace. I am fine because of God's strength in me. That's contentment. Couple that with godliness and your life will radically change. My friends, waiting gives us opportunity to learn contentment, which is so lacking in our materialistic, rush, rush, rush life here in New Jersey. We lack contentment. And we have no time for waiting. Well, as Christians, we wait. We celebrate the waiting of the past, but we wait ourselves. We wait for God to fulfill his promises to us. We wait for God to intervene in our lives and bless us. But we especially wait for re the return of Jesus Christ, that second advent in which he will take his church. Get this now, be clear. He will take his church to be with him forever and ever and ever and ever. And those naysayers will say, oh, that's just folly. That's just wishful thinking. That's just some sort of mythical belief. Keep in mind, the naysayers said that Christ would never come in the first place. Then never would he be born and laid in a manger. Never would he be placed on a cross and then crucified. Never would he ascend into heaven. And he did, and he did, and he did. And now he said he's coming back. Take him for his word. He will return. And the question of then, of course, is, are you ready? So as you wait, prepare yourself, for that day is coming. We do not know the hour. It seems like it's not far from today. We don't know. But we do know this. One day the waiting will come to an end. And reality, the reality, will be God's presence. At the fullness of time, Christ rescues us. Amen.